welcome to another episode of Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and me, David Schleicher, talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind with um, with uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful guests. Uh, so who do we have with us today, Sam? David, it's Jamal Green today to talk about his uh, fantastic new book, How Rights Went Wrong. It's another book about rights. Uh, puzzlingly, it doesn't uh, argue for abandoning them altogether. Uh, instead, it claims that in the American system, uh, they're treated in absolute terms and judges could do better uh, by adopting a practice that Green calls rights mediation. So we'll figure out what that means and whether we like it or not. Yeah, I thought this book was super and I thought this was a really fun conversation. So uh, let's get to it. All right, so our guest today is the great Jamal Green, who's Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia, uh, and most important, author of this thrilling and thrillingly written new book, Just Out, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Jamal, welcome. Thanks for having me. So this book uh, is... Uh, uh, sets up its, its intervention by telling us how we got to this point. Uh, and you tell a story about what rights meant at the founding and in early American history, and then um, what happened to lead to our obsession with rights and the crisis. So first, what? how did rights kind of start their American story? I, I start this tale basically at the Bill of Rights. <clears throat> And I, I do that not because I'm sort of super interested in what the founders thought about rights, although I'm, you know, I'm 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 curious about it, right? But but more because when you tell the story that I tell in this book, one of the responses is often, but the founders. Um, you know, there's something special about the American founding that makes us um classically liberal or or um quasi-libertarian. And so I, I want to start off by kind of debunking that, and uh, and I and and I really could have started. I, in fact, I do start as I think about the book. I do start with the Declaration of Independence um, and this language of unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and you know, a, a moment's thought um, makes clear that rights to a right to pursue happiness can't be absolute um, if everyone has it, right? We, we don't have the same ends as everyone else. So, so that's just, so, so clearly, you know, the, 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 the people who wrote the, and signed the Declaration of Independence, you know, didn't think that rights were absolute. Um, uh, what they did think is that the way you pursue your rights is through self-government. Um, and the next line of the Declaration of Independence, right, makes that clear, right? It's a, and that's why we institute governments in order to achieve rights. It doesn't say that's why we, you know, give courts the power to to declare absolute rights or something, right? They 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 weren't interested in that, right? So the book tries to start out by associating rights with self-government. Um, we often tend to think of rights today, and in the U.S. at least, as being antagonistic to government, um, but. From the framers' perspective, these were entirely consistent, right? The, the rights are are what people uh, need in order to uh, achieve um, a, 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 a well-lived life um, and to participate in civil society. Um, and the way you get that is by is you institute governments. They're going to clash with each other. You know, different people's rights are going to clash with each other. But uh, that's why you have government institutions to try to work out those clashes. And the Bill of Rights, I try to tell a somewhat revisionist history. I'm not the, I'm not the first person to make um, some claims along these lines, but, but the Bill of Rights is pervasively focused on, on strengthening and protecting institutions of self-government, um, primarily the, and prominently the jury, um, but, but also local legislatures, the militia, the church, um, and, and so forth. So, so I start with the founding and start with rights as uh, something that government is created in order to protect and preserve, and indeed in order to negotiate. Um, 
Now, the problem with that is that the the with that understanding of rights is is that you can't define the community as narrowly as the as the founders did. You can't say me and my friends will get together and decide what everyone's rights are and then celebrate that as democracy. Um, so much of the rest of American history, to oversimplify, has been trying to to marry this understanding of self-government with genuine pluralism. <clears throat> Um, and that's the challenge. We're still we're still trying to work our way towards how do you deal with, you know, pluralism plus self-government, you know, giving us rights in some way. Uh, and the book's trying to, to to point us in that direction. Okay, so to make a, a a long and rich and you know well-told story short, we we end up at the end of this of the tale with something called rightsism, and I'd, I'd just like you to explain. Um, how it how it then happened if rights were initially about self-government along with massive exclusion, um, how it happened that we we ended up with this kind of bifurcated system where a few rights are protected by a counter-majoritarian judiciary uh, and none others seem to matter. That's sort of... Um, what you call this, this, a discriminating approach to rights that we've ended up having judiciaries enforce. So could you, you know, summarize and however, uh, in, in whatever way seems, you know, easiest um, that, you know, the 60, 70, 80 page uh, trajectory that you sketch to get us to the present. I, I always get a little bit nervous about telling, you know, I'm telling a very complicated story. <clears throat> um, and I'm telling one piece of a very complicated story, right? And so there's a lot of other things going on between 1791 and, and 2021 um, when it comes to how we think about rights. But uh, part of the reason I tell the story in the way that I tell it is because is I think this is missing from some, uh, some standard accounts, uh, which is uh, that the way we think about, so, you know, if you start from the from this founding premise of local self-government being important, how do we, what do we do about that? Well, you get the Civil War, you get um, a renewed focus on uh, individual rights and the rights of minorities in particular against majorities as being something important, something that judges protect, something that the federal government protects. But of course, that gets repurposed pretty quickly. Um, and Black civil rights, which is what the 14th Amendment was primarily about in the civil, the post-Civil War amendments, um, gets um, gets gets thinned out in a lot of ways. And the most powerful use of the 14th Amendment between the end of the between the end of Reconstruction and the middle of the 20th century is um, protecting economic rights. So protecting rights to 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 contract um, rights against um, uh, certain kinds of labor regulations, health and safety measures. And so forth, that gets abandoned um, as you know, part of the progressive political movement, uh, which which then starts to stock the courts. Uh, but in abandoning it, and this is you know for law professors and law students will will recognize in this telling you know Caroline Products footnote four as being um, as being a kind of avatar for for this for this view. But in abandoning um, the the view that. Um, ordinary social and economic legislation should be, you know, questioned um, aggressively by by judges. Uh, it's it is understood, at least by some, that uh, you can't you can't just defer endlessly to to legislatures. You've got a a, a large segment of the country that is um, that is treating a large segment of its population as as being um, less than uh, full citizens. Uh, and here I'm talking about Jim Crow, of course. And lots of other instances in which it's mostly in the discrimination space, somewhat in the free speech space, um, freedom of religion space, where it's 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 clear that there can't be absolute deference. So you end up with this these kind of two tracks where either you're talking about the sort of thing, the sort of behavior that should trigger very strong rights, civil rights, traditional conventional um, civil rights. Um, or you're talking about deference uh, and absolute deference, because that's one of the kind of um, the, the 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 aftermath of the the so-called Lochner era is that you know we're supposed to be really deferential, right? So you, so you end up with these this kind of binary between absolute deference and and thinking of rights as something that have to be protected because 
rights are inseparable from the idea that the government is injuring someone or is acting in some pathological way. Uh, that way of thinking about rights, where it's so rights are connected to, um, to to pathological behavior by the government, uh, is is unsustainable in a world where lots and lots of people are claiming rights for good reasons. Um, and 1960s and 1970s, it becomes clear that lots and lots of people are claiming rights for good reasons, and they're um, they're claiming rights against governments that are not pathological, but are trying to govern and are nonetheless interfering with something that those people think is important. Um, sexual revolution, fr free speech movement changes in important ways, criminal procedure revolution, rights, rights to government welfare benefits, and so forth. And then you get into, of course, affirmative action and, and, and Roe versus Wade and, and so forth. And suddenly you're in a universe where, where you, you know, the a right to abortion is is not something that it makes sense to think of as being completely absolute. Um, at least most people don't think that. Uh, and uh, and nonetheless, it's of course also not something that um, is you know the, where the right is where you completely defer to the to the government, right? So um, so that's just that's a it's a so rightsism, which is where you started this, right? Is is you know, you you approach this kind of que this question of the the flowering of rights all around us. The way you approach that from a rightsist perspective is to say, we've got to decide. We, the court, has to decide which of these rights are real rights and which of these rights are not real rights. And so they discriminate in that way, rather than um, a, a more ecumenical or more generous um, approach that that I essentially urge. That says, let's think about rights as prima facie, you know, pretty, pretty generously, um, but, but think much more about the particular factual context in which rights find themselves. All right. So we want to get into that, but um, let me, let me ask just for the sake of summary of what kind of one last question. Um, can, can you just explain why it is you think that this, you know, bifurcated or just let's say discrimination system where we honor a few rights and consign the rest to, to you know, politics. Um, it, it derives contest that is troubling you. I mean, that's what's in the subtitle. And I also want to make sure that this that you're describing the outcome fairly, because you know, any any right system will have to engage in triage and dismiss some claims as rights. Not everything can be. A right, uh, so there's going to be a, a second track in every right system that you know puts some out of consideration, at least for the judiciary. And of course, we have you know intermediate scrutiny, or ra we have rational basis with bite. We have strict scrutiny that can sometimes be uh, you know uh, fatal in theory, but not in fact. And so I'm wondering if, it, yeah, so it, it is, is, is the, the bifurcated system, in fact, a little more supple um, than, than just these two categories might suggest? So, so for sure. So if we're talking about um, how courts in, in particular go about doing their work, yes, it is certainly more supple than this bifurcated system. And likewise, in if you go abroad to systems that are more along the lines of proportionality, which I um, celebrate, I, I celebrate it in a qualified way, but that I celebrate, uh, yes, there, there's not endless rights inflation um, in other systems either. Uh, what I'm interested in is, is a frame of mind. And I, I use certain examples that I think indicate a certain frame of mind. If you, if you, uh, if your system is actually supple enough to capture all of the interesting contextual differences between different situations and right in which rights are claimed, but you don't, you don't admit that, or you're not self-conscious about that, or you, or you, um, you're not aware of that. Um, then you get distortions in how cases are decided. Um, I'll give you one example um, that 
will will be an example that uh, that people on the right will be more sympathetic to, at least in 2021, um, which is uh, a case called Employment Division versus Smith, uh, where Justice Scalia writes majority opinion. This this was more a more conservative view back then than it is now. But Justice Scalia writes a majority opinion saying that if you want to make a claim that a neutral law of general applicability uh, violates your religious freedom in some way, that y- you have to show that the discrimination was intentional. Uh, and if you can't show that, then there's no claim at all, right? There's just no, doesn't matter how uncaring or egregious the burden is on you. If it wasn't intended as a burden, it just doesn't, it just doesn't count as a, as a rights claim. <clears throat> Uh, and he says you have to do that, or else there's going to be anarchy. He uses the word anarchy, um, and that's that's of course preposterous. I mean, the, 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 that there be anarchy that would result. Uh, but but that's how you know. And Washington versus Davis, which is a very similar case in a lot of ways, in the race space, Justice White says the same thing. Um, Roe versus Wade, um, Justice Blackman, writing the majority opinion, says we can't think of fetal rights as having constitutional value because that would decide the case. Uh, so there's a frame of mind within our system, and I can give you lots of other cases where, where this frame of mind is used, uh, where we dismiss rights claims or we decide cases on the ground that we actually can't make the kinds of supple distinctions that, you're, that you, you say are, are there. And I agree with you that they are there in lots of ways because, you know, when you, when, when 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 case law confronts reality, you, you often make distinctions. And anyone who teaches First Amendment law, right, knows that there's a million just different distinctions um, when the, when when you get down to brass tacks. But I'm I'm trying to take a step back from what actually happens in a in a in the in the you know part three of uh, of a court case, and think about how we think about rights as a matter of first principles. Uh, because I think that that has tentacles that reach outside of courts as well um, and influences the way society thinks about rights. So that's exactly where I want to pick up. That was terrific. Um, by the way, I was reading this book and I was teaching City of Renton. And it's like maybe the perfect example for me of a like two legal regimes with legal and they hit it one another. But your view or hist- history here is kind of court centric. It starts with like the courts reacted to Lochner and then, you know, they rejected Lochner and that, that affected how they thought about rights going forward. And you bring this and it shoots out. So you, you bring out the, the way we talk about rights in courts may affect the way we, the BC boys think about the, you got you have to fight for the right to party, but it doesn't go the other way. And one, so one of the things I was thinking about is like kind of what I thought was one of the most arresting passages in the introduction, where you link rights talk to political polarization. And you say, uh, um, uh, we're perceived as absolute rights take poorly to conflict. Um, our opponent in rights conflict becomes not simply a fellow citizen who disagrees with us, but an enemy out to destroy us. Law becomes reducible to winners and losers, to which side you're on, which tribe you affiliate with. With stakes this high, polarization should not just be expected, but is indeed the only sensible response. So there's like really powerful stuff and, and quite interesting, but I kept wondering what if the causation is reversed? What if the reason we talk about rights so much is because we hate each other so much and that rights talk is a, a kind of um, uh, or talking about rights is kind of replaces horse trading in ordinary politics. It's a rhetorical weapon in the kind of polarized war we're going through. And in this way, no different from kind of the replacement of norms. We see things like, you know, fights over the filibuster or politics ending at the nation shore. I mean, you say a couple of times, and I thought it was inter- quite interesting, that like, judges aren't the reason we hate each other, but judges have a power to make it better. And I think that's probably right. But I wonder if the reason judges talk about so much about rights and the reason we talk about it is because we hate each other so much. So I th- I think that's a I mean I think the reason we hate each other is is a is a complicated story that I'm I'm not I'm not really prepared to tell, um, uh, and I, I I don't exclude the possibility that at least a big chunk of the reason why courts do the do, do American courts operate the way they do is because we hate each other. Um, I think that does make it harder for them to get out of the space that they're in as well. So I, I'm I'll just I'm I'm somewhat agnostic about the about the cause um, for I, I do think it, I'm 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 basically saying look I've got a prima facie case here 
right? I see courts doing something. They've been doing it for a while now, right? So if you, if you, a lot of the cases, you know, I, I part of the story I tell sp- spends a bunch of time in the 1960s, and um, and as I look at um, a point at which various choices were being made about how we were going to think about rights, you know, this is this is not a, a not an unusually polarized era, the 1970s in particular. So, so a Washington versus Davis, a Roe versus Wade. Um, which, which is made in, uh, under remarkable condi- conditions of uh, of uh, of you know people crossing the aisle in, in various ways. Um, obviously, there was political disagreement, right? But but the you know the the the, the trend line in in where, where we are in terms of polarization starts after this period, right? So so I'm I'm observing something that I see courts doing that I think. I have good reason to think is contributing to what ails us. I, I'm I'm not suggesting that you know if, if only courts do what my book says, you know, kumbaya, we will we will you know bind ourselves together as a nation and and so forth. But but I do see, and I'll just give another example of ways in which the things that sound like pedantic legal doctrine sort of show up in the real world. <laughs> The diversity rationale, right? This is this is born of a single judicial opinion, but that that got no other sign-ons, right? By by Lewis Powell, based on his own idiosyncratic views, and you know every educational institution in America and and a non-educational institution that um, that consider race um, either in their admissions practices or in there are other business practices will say diversity, diversity, diversity. I think that that, you know, it's not only, you know, Lewis Powell, right? But that's where this, that's the seed of people would be talking about this in very different ways if uh, Justice Marshall or Justice Brandon had written the majority opinion in Baki. Um, and so I, I, you know, I see, I see moments of decision that do affect the culture. And I see um, bad decisions, at least from my perspective, being made. Uh, along the lines that I talk about in the book. So, so I, I guess I'd say, you know, I, I think it is a, you know, it, it's a legitimate thing to push back on is to say, well, you know, how much is this really court driven versus society driven? But uh, I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll say if you're, if, you know, if one were to take the view that what the court does doesn't matter, you know, I, I would think, and I, I'm not suggesting you're taking that view, David, um, I, then, you know, you've, I've got some evidence you've got to overcome. So I, I just wonder if 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 you would take a, a second first to kind of um, put yourself in dialogue with other theorists of this problem. It just so happens that today in this class I'm co-teaching up here called Foundations of American Legal Thought, we assign Ronald Dworkin, Marianne Glendon, and you. Uh, and it, it it's kind of impressive how, in a way, closely... Glendon's book, Rights Talk, 30 years to the day, practically before your great book, kind of um, tracks yours, but with differences. It seems like it's much more about a a cultural syndrome. And it, it doesn't think the solution is even mainly, let's call it doctrinal, like elaborating a new jurisprudential framework for rights adjudication. So is is are you then saying that that's that difference is an illusion, or maybe you think that's right, but it's just in this book you're focusing on courts because you're kind of not sure what's driving this. What you can say for sure is that the courts are 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 doing things badly and could change their ways. Is that is that the best rendition of of how you can it kind of the comparison and contrast of these two books that are so close? Yeah, I think that that's fair. Um, for, well, first of all, you know, thank you for putting me in in, in the company of, of Dworkin and, and Marianne Glendon. Um, you won. I mean, the students <laughs> were celebrating by the, that you'd, you'd settled everything. Well, I, I, I do think that I'm right. <laughs> um, so, and so there's that. Um, uh, so as to, as to rights talk, you know, I, I, there's a there's a ton in that book that I agree with, uh, and that's 
that's clear to anyone who reads both uh, both books. Uh, I think it's right that Marianne Glendon is much more in is much more interested in a kind of cultural diagnosis. So she, courts are part of that, but they're not just part of that. And I, I don't think I'd have to go back and look. I don't think she really tells a causal story of any kind about it leading from courts to just sort of courts are part of the way we talk about the about um, about rights. And she, for her, I think it's a, it's, you know, the death of communities and so forth. So I, I, I'd say a couple of things. So one is I, I like rights. Um, I, I like talking about rights, in fact. Um, I just want to talk about them differently. And, and so I don't think that when we talk about um, communities, when we talk about government, when we talk about um, people caring for one another, I don't think we, we've stopped talking about rights at that point, right? I, I think that I, I would like to start to start calling those things also conversations about rights. So I'm trying to socialize rights, um, and I and so part of, part of the reason I point to judges, you know, I'm a law, I'm a law professor and I I studied courts and I think that there are things that courts can do that can encourage, and particularly because we've given our rights over to courts. We look to courts to tell us what rights are and what their scope is. And so, you know, these are these are the modern oracles. And so, uh, you know, you, you could say, well, let's stop having them be the modern oracles. Or you could say, well, is there something they could tell us <laughs> that, you know, gets us closer to where we should want to be, which is, um, to think about rights in our ordinary um, interactions with each other. <clears throat> think about the rights of others um, as we, when we make decisions, rather than saying, well, I'm gonna get mine. And then I'll, you know, the court will, will work out whether I could have gotten mine or not. Uh, you know, I, I would like courts and um, I would like the rest of us to also be having conversations about rights. I think that's inevitable. I don't think that's something that we can, you know, I'm not nostalgic. Um, there's a, I think there's a spirit of nostalgia in Marianne Glendon's work that, uh, that I, I don't think we are, I don't think we've ever been in the place where I would like us to go. Um, whereas I feel like she, the spirit of her book is something's been lost um, in, in how we talk about, think, think about rights. So I, I think that's the, the main difference, I think I'm a bit more prescriptive uh, than she is. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite sp quite specific about how we should resolve certain controversies, um, or at least the right questions to ask about those controversies. So, and then Dworkin, I mean, Dworkin and I have a lot of differences. Um, he's the flail in some ways. Um, because, and, I, I, and I'll, what I'll say about Dworkin is although he styles himself as someone styled himself as someone who um, had had interesting things to say to courts. I, I you know, I, I don't think he's really, I'm talking about adjudication of, of, of conflicts between people. I'm not talking about the nature of rights. Um, only if, I'm, I'm, or I should say, I'm only talking about the nature of rights as incidental to, to the resolution of, of, of conflicts in society. If you want to write something that says, no, I think this is what a right is, I, you know, and it's, you know, a right is, you know, a, is a, a Trumpy thing, not, not Trump, the former president, but, you know, something that trumps other things. And here's why, um, I'll, this is me, me um, reducing Dworkin. Um, I, that's fine, right? But, you know, at the point at which you say, and, 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 and courts, which have this coercive power over people, should then take my definition and use it to define people's um, obligations toward one another um, through the coercive power of the law. Well, now I'm now I'm interested, um, and I would like, you know, I think you need you need to say more <clears throat> about what happens when people disagree, <clears throat> and and whether they have a right to disagree. Great. So that that really that answer takes us directly where we want to go, which is um, Europe, uh, because when when you look for a model. Uh, 
for you know maybe our society but certainly for our courts you look globally but you know as for glendon actually what that really means is um you know the european system or western european adjudication so um could you just explain you mentioned it um what you mean when you say it would be better for american courts to stop discriminating rights and mediate instead, which means something called proportional adjudication of rights and, you know, interests, uh, you know, in, in conflict. Sure. So let me make a preliminary point first, right? Which is, you know, there's a way of, there's a way of talking about the the themes of this book to, to lawyers, right? And there's a way of, of talking about the themes of this book to people who aren't lawyers. And for the for the most lawyerly explanation of what I'm about, um, one could look to a Harvard Law Review piece I wrote in 2018 called Rights as Trumps. Um, and there I talk about a thing called proportionality um, at some length. I've written about proportionality in other contexts as well. Lots and lots of people have written about proportionality in lots of contexts. Um, and it's a, it's a it's an it's an approach for structuring um i a, i would say a structured approach to balancing i'm i'm going to use the word balancing although i don't love that word um here but um a structured approach to balancing rights against whatever the particular interests of the government might be um now the book doesn't talk about proportionality that much it does talk about it a little bit but um what it what it talks about is the the kinds of things that I think proportionality is trying to preserve and promote, um, which is you know I used I think I used the term ecumenical before, but but a, an approach to rights that takes everyone's rights seriously, um, which requires us not to take them absolutely. Uh, uh, so the the contrary approach is one that rather than approaching a rights conflict. So, you know, you, Sam, you and I disagree about something. We both will claim that our rights are at stake in that disagreement. Uh, I, the, one approach is for the court to decide whose rights are, who actually has the right and who doesn't. Um, another approach would be to say, well, you know, there's a, what is the, you know, there's a, there's a law here. <laughs> Um, that has been passed by a government. It's burdening someone in some way. Someone else is trying to, you know, someone wants to relieve that burden in some way. What is the gov- what is the government trying to accomplish here? Uh, is that the is it the sort of thing that we typically within our culture allow governments to try to accomplish? Um, is um, is is the end that the government is trying to pursue? based on any evidence, given that there's a, a burden on someone here? Um, or do they just speculate about something? How big is the burden? Um, is there other ways of relieving this burden that would not be as burdensome? Now, those are the kinds of questions that someone asks if they care about whether someone's treatment is just or not. Um, that's what you would, you know, that's what, those are the kinds of questions someone would ask if they stepped away from courtrooms and just, you know, is this just or, or not? Uh, the question of who, who has the right, right, is a, is a legalism. It's an abstract question. Um, and it doesn't answer anything. I mean, it does, you know, it, it's, I mean, it, it, it can, it could resolve the conflict if you decide to let it resolve the conflict, right? But it doesn't get at the justice of this particular conflict between a person and the government or between two people um, who are, whose, whose behavior is governed by law in some way. Right. So I, I'm, I'm trying to get us to ask those other questions. And I don't think that there is anything about our constitution or its text or its history that prevents us from associating constitutional reasoning with asking those kinds of questions. Now, Europe, you know, European courts, Canadian courts too. I, I'm, I think I'm more of a bigger fan of the Supreme Court of Canada than I am of any European court. Uh, those courts tend to ask those kinds of questions more. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they do it perfectly or that I, you know, I'm not elevating any particular system and saying we we should be this system. I'm saying I do pick out some opinions and say I think this opinion's got is asking the right questions. But you know, whatever anyone else does, you know, if they're not asking these kinds of questions, I think they're doing it wrong. <laughs> So I want to pick up right there because one of the central claims here is that not only will uh, looking at constitutional problems that are in court this way lead to better results, but that looking at problems this way will lead to a better politics, broadly speaking. And that's like, I, that's like part of the claim. And you do a really powerful job of describing how the courts in German courts dealing with abortion questions have led to kind of like a more reasonable type of outcomes and a more reasonable politics than we have here, a less contentious, more balanced, more fitting majoritarian preference type thing. But I wonder whether the um, race ecumenicalism and uh, does that across all issues, including the issues that may be in court there that are not in other jurisdictions that are not here, would ne- almost necessarily be by broadening but weakening, I don't know, broadening, broadening but balancing the universe in court. So, for instance, I mean, there's a huge fight in Europe oh, right now, in Germany, particularly over whether the particular moves made by the European Central Bank violate the German constitution. And this is the kind of claim that we largely keep out of our courts. Because we just don't think about the world that like monetary policy is just like, ah, man, something for someone else, for another independent, not quite democratically, uh, you know, democratically controllable institution, not for this one. Um, uh, Do you think that it is necessarily the case, conditionally the case or what, that this type of whether or not it improves individual decisions, it leads to a healthier constitutional politics to have uh, proportionality like regime or uh, uh, mediating type regime. Um, so I, I'm, I'm making a prediction <clears throat> that it will lead to a healthier constitutional politics, <clears throat> and I'm making that prediction on the basis of some serious deficiencies in the things that we do now. <clears throat> now, that prediction could turn out to be wrong, <clears throat> um, and there are any number of it could be wrong because it's wrong in theory. Although I don't think it's wrong in theory. <clears throat> um, or it could be wrong because it's implemented poorly or 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 it's too complicated or something, you know, something like that. Uh, and if it's wrong, then we should do something else. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm not um I, I'm I'm not a sort of utopian or 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 a, you know or a cultish um about about this. Um I you know I I observe certain things and I I and I I, I think that I'm making reasonable predictions on the basis of what I observe. Now, one thing I will say, uh, uh, and this gets at, gets at the the monetary policy question a little bit, is that there are certain kinds of of behavior that we, or, or certain kinds of injuries that we tend to associate with rights. Now connecting something like monetary policy to you know some individual burden it's not impossible um that one could get there um but it's a bit more attenuated um the the space that in which i think the arguments in the book are most powerful are spaces in which the behavior of the government um implicates something identitarian <clears throat> Right, so implicates um, what people understand themselves to be about, and I think the system, the constitutional system, has to, at some level, to some extent, take the people it is governing as they are, or meet them at least partially where they are. Policy differences that don't implicate identity in some way um, are uh, less fertile ground for for the arguments in this book. And you can say something similar about sort of constitutional structural questions, federalism questions, which I I gather the uh, is or some version of a federalism question I gather is is at issue in the German situation. yeah, you can you know you can make a you can make a bunch of claims about the right way to adjudicate these 
questions about absolutism versus balancing rules and standards, right? You can make those kinds of moves. But I think the stakes are just different um, when we're talking about, and I don't mean the real world stakes. I mean, I mean the stakes for the constitutional system are different when we're talking about um, claims that sound in identity. And, and, and it's, you know, you know and I'll, just to make this more, more, more concrete, I think part of the way I got to this point was thinking about, as I, as I self-diagnose, and why did I write this book? Uh, you know, I, I started my, my academic career writing a lot about originalism. <clears throat> and at some point I wrote a very short, like symposium piece or something about race and originalism <clears throat> and trying to figure out like, why is it that originalism is so alienating to African-Americans in particular? And if you ask an you know, most originalists that question, they'll say, well, it shouldn't really be alienating. I mean, we, we amended the constitution in various ways that were, that were, um, that were forward looking and blah, 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 right? But, um, but what, I, what I kind of settled on is that if I tell you that the constitution means a certain thing and it will always mean that thing until it's changed by some extraordinary procedure, and I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm part of a people that have been on the outs for a long time. I'm going to disengage from that. I, that's not my constitution. It can't be my constitution, right? Especially if you say, oh, and that thing, the way we're going to figure out what that thing means is we're going to ask slaveholders and whatnot. You know, that, that's, um, so, I, I'm, so, so I think uh, I want to generalize that point, which is that when we're talking about um, issues that implicate identity in particular, the constitution has to be open to contestation. And, uh, and I, and, and I, I, I think that, that the, 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 what I'm battling against is an impulse to say the constitution has to be settled. And I think there's a stronger argument for saying it has to be settled when we talk about constitutional structure than when we talk about rights. I think it's actually a bad thing for it to be settled when we talk about rights. So I want to uh, ask a question, you know, that follows on uh, sort of about rights theory. Um, you know, earlier you said you, you don't just want courts to adjudicate differently um, through, you know, mediation, um, but you, you'd, you'd really like to see Americans talk about them differently. Although we've, you know, we haven't settled exactly, you know, what the relationship is between the, the legal model and, and whatever is going on in, in society in general. I guess what I want to ask is if we could get more rights while also in a sense making them weaker in so far as we, you know, allow them to conflict and manage that conflict. Uh, we have other interests, including government interests that if they're compelling enough, overcome rights. Rights then become something like, you know, good things a lot of people want or priorities um, that are, you know, rebuttable. So I, I guess I'm wondering what, what, what's at stake in saying, you know, we, we keep rights um, when we've pluralized and weakened them and allowed someone, you know, judges or society as a whole to just kind of figure things out given their proliferation. Um, not everything can be a right, but if there are a lot and they're weaker uh, in the sense I've tried to outline, it's, it, I'm, I'm at a certain point, they're just kind of like um, part of a, a broad policymaking process and you know we get into who who resolves it but what's at stake in rights on your model so i i think that at some level you're right right that the model i'm describing um includes rights within a broader policy making conversation uh, that said i i do think there are circumstances under which rights should be taken extremely strongly um, and should and should overcome almost all um, contrary government action. But that should depend on what is at stake rather than depending on what you call 
the thing, <laughs> right? So situations in which people are not treated as full citizens <clears throat> are unable to participate in political life um, are, you know, have their freedom taken away from them, <clears throat> genuinely taken away from them. Well, that, that's about rights, sure. And that's, you know, if that's what's happening, <laughs> Well, that's really, you know, the government better have a good reason for doing that. <laughs> and usually it's not going to, right? So uh, I'm so I'm not against the, you know, I, I, I want to talk about what <laughs> the situation is <laughs> rather than talking about talking in abstract terms, right? So, you know, uh, uh, someone who, and, and that actually, and that, and I, I'll say, um, you know, the, the, the old debates about, you know, positive and negative rights um, has some bearing here, right? Which is, you know, rights are interest. Um, they are, when, when, they, when uh, there are certain circumstances under which those interests are really powerful. Um, and that, that has to interact in some way with but the you know what you know, you also live in a society right so what are the government's reasons and for, for action are they really it should be really serious when you're when the burden's really serious right um, but that also means that there may be circumstances in which the government has to facilitate your interest in some way you know those situations are you know the times when you would have a court. Um, try to force a government to facilitate your exercise of your rights in some way are going to be more narrow circumstances than times when a court tells the government not to take something away from you that you that you that that is very important to you, right? But those situations may also exist, right? It, so it's it's trying not to draw legalistic lines around rights claims and draw lines, blurred lines, um, based on uh, a kind of, uh, I'll, I'll use the term that's often associated with Thurgood Marshall, a sliding scale between the government's interest and the burdens on the people at issue. And that is the kind of thing that I, that I can't tell you exactly how it works out in advance. You have to work it out over over time and based on a, lots of lots of different situations. So that's exactly where I wanted to pick up because I thought there's an unbelievably powerful passage in the book where you say, modern day Nazis clad in SS uniforms and proudly waving swastika flags have a right to march in Illinois suburbs that thousands of Holocaust survivors call home. But Americans have no right to food, to shelter, to healthcare. And this is like drawing that exact line between like strong negative rights and a weak or non-existent positive rights. But when you look around the world or even at uh, American state courts and the right to education, um, enforcing positive rights has turned out to be quite a difficult thing to do. Uh, um, it's uh, it, and, and one of the reasons, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is the difficulty courts have as institutions in figuring out some of these complex trade-offs. So when a South African court is asked, does it violate the right to housing to spend a lot of money on fighter jets? It's a type of question that a court itself institutionally is not super well situated to figure out, like to adjudicate the needs of military defense against uh, kind of constitutional commitments to housing. And so I kind of wondered what you thought about the, like, do you think uh, our current court system is well set up to do the types of rights mediation you're looking for? Like, should it be organized differently if we, they were going to do this? Should they have research arms? Should they have, I mean, I, the so maybe this is two questions rather than one, but one is like, how seriously do you take the institutional critique that um, rates mediation is too hard a job for judges with, you know, four law student, recent law student graduates as staffers to do. And then if you do take it seriously, but still would like to press on, um, uh, what institutional changes do you think we should see in the judiciary to make them better capable of doing this kind of complex, uh, multidimensional uh, rates mediation? So, so, uh, so great. So, um, do I think that they, they have what they need to do this? Well, no, um, I think most courts in the world don't have what they need to do this. Well, um, maybe none actually, uh, to, to do this really well. Uh, I, I, I do think that the alternative is, is deeply problematic, right? So I, so I don't think that's a reason to abandon the project. Uh, 
I so let me say a, a couple of things. So one is is enforcing positive rights is hard. Uh, the fact that it's hard and it's partly hard because it involves exactly the kinds of trade-offs that that um, we typically trust political actors to make. That's a that's a factor that should be a factor in adjudicating them, right? So if you know if, if one reason why I can't coercively tell the government to spend more money on housing rather than fighter jets is because I don't have the competence to to make that judgment. Well, that's part you know that's part of judging, right? Is to say whether I have the competence to make that judgment or not. You know there and that that wasn't you know the the. Um, uh, the the most famous of of housing cases, the group room case in in, in South Africa, wasn't that you know there were, there actually were facts <laughs> available to the court that enabled the court to say you know you actually could have done um, a bit you know you could have done this differently than you did it right so so the more you know the more facts you have uh, uh, about what the what the alternatives uh, are the the better. That said. And the more uh, when I say the better, the more a court's going to be able to get a handle on these things. That said, you know what would I want courts to look like? Um, I, I I would want. I, I think the I think the biggest obstacle in the U.S. is that we we are wed to a uh, a party presentation model of factual development, right? So the way that courts get facts is that the adversarial parties that have their own biases. Um, present their view of the facts to the to the court, and that's determined by some district court somewhere, um, uh, which might be you know determining you know social facts, you know not just adjudicative facts, right? Social facts um, based on party presentation. You know, so experts might come in, but not always, um, and depending on depends on the issue, right? So I, I would I would allow courts in a uh, and appellate courts in particular, but district courts as well, uh, I would allow courts to solicit information from, uh, and perhaps even subpoena information from uh, third parties and from the government um, when when it's useful to them in resolving a dispute. I would, you know, the, the way the Supreme Court does oral argument is, is to me crazy, um, given the kinds of cases it decides. You know, if it were, if it were, um, if it were really just, you know, black and white, cut and fat kind of um, uh, 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 simple questions of is this thing in the Constitution or not? I mean, that, yeah, maybe you could resolve that in thirty minutes for each side. But you know, you're, the court the courts are relying on often complex social facts that aren't always fully developed below. You've got amicus briefs that are like are are not peer reviewed or fact checked or and are interested parties. Uh, so. Um, I think a I think a judicial research service um, that does more serious research than a, a particular chamber's clerks could do um, also makes some sense as you get higher up into the chain and so where the kinds of decisions you're making um, where the facts that that you use in your decisions are more are more consequential um, to to try to get at answers to questions. Um, uh, that don't just rely on the party. So, uh, so yeah, there are a bunch of things I would I would change, um, and we're not there yet. But I don't I, I don't think those are you know those are those are changes. They're resource constraints. Um, but I think you work towards that um, uh, rather than the alternative being right. Courts are still doing historical research. They're still doing. Um, they, they are still researching questions, but those questions are not. Are completely orthogonal to the dispute. Um, you know, a dispute over campaign finance is not a dispute about the text of the First Amendment, right? It's a dispute about campaign finance. Um, uh, you know, it's about you know claims being made about equal access to the political system, and claims being made about the particular burdens on corporations. I, you know, Citizens United. Um, you know, the the key question in the case to me, really one of the key questions in the case, was how burdensome is it to start to start up a separate PAC rather than using your general treasury funds. That question, like, is not answered or asked in Citizens United, uh, and that's just, you know, that like that's where that's where the rubber hits the road. And yet we've 
managed to abstract away from that at the cost of consensus building. And I'll, I'll just to keep on to stay on that example, you know, if you, know, if you had decided that case based on the fact that Citizens United is an ideological nonprofit, that's very different from General Motors. <clears throat> yeah, you might get a few more votes, right, for your for your outcome, right? But we've we're we've been we've been trained to think that once someone says the word right, we got we got to you know we got to ab- abstract away from the from the facts. Um, uh, and I think that that's you know so I try to identify lots of ways in which that's problematic. Uh-huh. All right. So last question for me. It 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 I get the emphasis you know, in the book, you know, beautifully done and in your last answer on fact sensitivity and on the way that in in a mediating model, judges could de-dramatize more than they typically have. And of course, it's also true that we will always need judges to kind of figure out what what the rights we have, wherever they come from, constitution, statutes, what you know, whatever, um, how they play out in these conflicts. And yet, it seems as if y- you you are committed to the view that mediation would, um, in a sense, either save us the trouble as a society or al- rightly allow judges to figure out the contours of the the norms in big dramatic cases that are going to be really hard to de-dramatize. So take Roe v. Wade. Uh, you seem to say, well, it would be nicer if, you know, Justice Blackman had accorded fetal rights while still ultimately, as in Germany, giving women some kind of well-defended abortion right. My sense is that it's unlikely that that will de-dramatize. And I also wonder why judges in those big cases, at least, should be determining the contours of the norm, which they have to do, no matter how sensitive they are to facts. So, you know, there are noises in the book about how this approach would let us get rights back for our collective determination of their contours. But in the end, it's a very court-centered book. So, you know, could could you tell me, you know, why I'm wrong to be nervous about, um, you know, the, the way the book ultimately leaves excessive power in judges' hands to make big decisions about, you know, the way we live together. So I, I don't think you're wrong to be nervous. I think you should be nervous no matter what. Um, uh, so what I say- Don't worry, he always that, is. It's fine. Doesn't depend. <laughs> right. right. So, the you know, the, our, our future is, is, is nerve wracking, right? No matter what, right? But, so let me say just a couple of things quickly. So one is- um, one is what is my you know where, where do I get any confidence? Well, I you know the story I try to tell about Germany, and you'll have to you know go buy the book to to find out the full story, right? But is that in fact the temperature does go down, right? Abortion rights is less controversial today in Germany than it was in the 1970s. Um, it is more controversial in the United States than it is in the 1970s, and you can tell a story that get that like tells you why. Um, it's not you know it's it's not a you know, there's a lot of a lot of written about this history, obviously, right? But it's not a. I I I find it a pretty persuasive story. Um, now, um, now, why not just get judges out of this entirely? Well, I think that's unrealistic. So, you know, I'm trying to write a realistic book, and um, and I I think it's unrealistic to get judges out of it entirely. But I also think, you know, I I'm as I guess as a child of of you know the of people of of our student of professors educated um during the warren court and post warren court era you know i you know brown versus board of education still looms large where i think about my former colleague pat williams right and and talking about how important rights are to certain communities and that if you don't have that i that they're leaving those things entirely to the political process is um, is really problematic. Now, we might think that on balance, it's worse for judges to be involved. I think that, that I think that might well be right um, if they're going to be involved in the way they are now, right? So, if we're, if it's between you know between a just 
um, political pure political constitutionalism and what we do now, I might choose political constitutionalism. But I'm trying to say to 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 give what I think is a more practical um, uh, way out um, that isn't perfect, right? But um, but uh, and 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 what it you know what it what it tells judges to do is to set some boundaries, right? Not to define. I wouldn't say define the norm, right? I would say tell us when someone has gone too far or isn't thinking seriously enough about. The, the range of interests at stake. And I really do mean tell us, right? I, this is something I don't linger on in the book much, but I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of like rem, of remedial flexibility. I'm a big fan of judges saying you're wrong and uh, about this. Uh, take six months and tell me, you know, come back to me with something better. And maybe that's, maybe that'll be fine, right? When we see conflicts that are born of government trying to pursue the objectives of a community courts should be part of the you know part of their business should be trying to figure out how to solve the problem that the government's trying to solve rather than this kind of adversarial posture that said that that lumps together governments trying to solve problems with governments that are pathological right if the government's not pathological let's try to figure out how to solve the problem um, and so that so anyone who reads the book and says, you know, I've got a better way of getting us towards all institutions trying to help us solve our collective problems, I'm all ears for that. Um, but I'm skeptical about sort of pure political constitutionalism along those lines. So uh, I have one last question too, and it's uh, slightly different. So in addition to being uh, one of our nation's leading uh, thinkers about constitutional law, you're also a judge or a judge after a fashion. Um, you're the co-chair of Facebook's Oversight Board or the Facebook Supreme Court. I've got two questions about this. One is, it seems to me that proportionality is like, uh, or the kind of rights mediation is central to the, any effort of a of a Facebook Supreme Court. Is And I wonder if you could just like think about whether this is like a, a, as, as clean a fit as it seems to me to be in that in that type of institution. And then secondly, I want you to wonder if you could talk a little bit about how sanguine you are about private courts. So the thing about the Facebook Supreme Court that's so interesting is that it's the creation of a legal system without outside of a political system, outside of a formal, you know, state. We joked around on Twitter once about maybe the NBA should create an oversight board that has opinions and all of that type of stuff. Um, but so personally, like, do you think the Facebook model travels and then do you think the internal reasoning should match the things you think it should that that uh, that you think uh, you think federal courts should do? So uh, also first on the tra- on whether it tra- whether the model travels, I just don't know. Um, uh, I don't even I don't know if it works for Facebook, right? I mean, the oversight board. Um, I I think we're doing a, a, as good a job as we can so far, um, but I don't know if the model will work. It's a it's a new model, um, uh, and it's you know it's it's challenging, right? So. I don't know if it will travel. Can it travel? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think this, you know, the, I, I think self-regulatory, purely self-regulatory models, as in the, you know, the NBA referees today, right, um, are fine if the stakes are sufficiently low. And so part of the reason the oversight board was created is because people believe that the stakes are of what Facebook does um, in terms of content moderation go beyond you know, Facebook's own internal self-congratulation or whatever, right? It matters to people outside of the platform. Um, the Knicks matter very much to me, so it's a... <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, they matter to me too, right? But um, but on the, on the question of proportionality, yes. So in one sense, so part of the charge of the Oversight Board is to take into consideration international human rights norms. And so anytime you're dealing with, um, with a restriction on, on free expression of any kind, um, if proportionality is going to be part of thinking about that. So it's not a U.S. First Amendment model um, that, although that might be relevant to, to how we think about things, um, it, it is a, it is, it does, it is an international human rights model. So proportionality matters in that sense, in a jurisdictional sense, it matters. But it also is, of course, I think, quite important insofar as the thing that Facebook does is it sets, you know, it voluntarily sets up a platform with its own money um, 
to try to make money from advertisers and lets people like engage with each other on that platform. And, um, and uh, you know, it doesn't, and so and it sets rules, right? So um, there are certain th- certain things you can put on there, and certain things you can, if you want to put hardcore pornography on on your Facebook page. Like they will take it down, a bot will take it down immediately, right? Um, uh, so they're not so, but so they are regulating speech, right? And the oversight board exists because we've you know, a, a legal regime of sorts has been created. Uh, so. They're to, to oversee the way in which they're moderating speech, right? So, so Facebook's regulating and then they're, they're being regulated by someone else. So there's got to be some kind of standard for what Facebook is allowed to do or not allowed to do. And the standard can't be, you know, you can't restrict free expression, right? That can't be the standard. Um, uh, uh, and the standard also can't be um, you, or it isn't, that you restrict it however you want, <laughs> right? So, so when you're trying to apply some rule of law that is not um, binary, but requires calibration based on um, the fact that the particular um, cost of regulation and the cost of not regulating are going to vary across situations, you know, you need something like proportionality, or that's, that's the problem proportionality is trying to solve. And I think that problem exists outside of the Facebook context. Um, and I think it exists inside the Facebook context. So I, I think it makes perfect substantive sense to use proportionality in this in this context, right? Where, you know, if you really press people on it, no one thinks that that the fact that you've set up a, a platform means you must accept all speech on that platform, um, right? So, um, but people also don't usually don't think that if that platform grows to have three billion users and to be the same thing as the internet in lots of countries around the world that, you know, you can just regulate arbitrarily. Um, that's also a problem, right? So you got to figure out how to, what the space in between those things is. Um, and, and you need something like proportionality to do it. So the book uh, that Jamal Green has written is how right, how rights went wrong. It's, it's a blockbuster. I believe it's a classic. Everyone should, read it or at least buy it. Uh, the reviews are already pouring in and uh, we're grateful to you for writing it and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you um, to both of you for, for having me on and for that high praise. I appreciate it. Oh.